Welcome to another inspirational message from Chowdean Community Church, Gateshead. For more information about Chowdean, visit www.chowdean.org.uk. We hope you enjoy the podcast. We're enjoying the, the late summer sunshine, aren't we? <clears throat> and when you get up and it's warm and the sun's shining, you just kind of feel better. In the, in the warmth and in the heat and in the presence of the sun, we feel better. Well, now we're inside and we're in the presence of the Son of God. And we've come to, uh, I think this is the seventh in our series entitled, Hashtag Can You Believe It? And uh, just to quickly recap, then we started off by looking at how the universe began. We then looked at the origins of life, and we've looked at all the vast quantity of evidence that supports our Christian worldview of a theistic God. Then we looked at some difficult questions, the question of suffering, and that led us into the question of hell. Is it real, and what's it like, and how could a loving God send people there? Then we got on to whether the New Testament is actually true. And we established that we have very strong evidence for the truth of the New Testament and the four Gospels in particular. And last month, we looked at whether Jesus' bodily resurrection was real. And all the evidence indicates that it was indeed. So where does that take us now? We can say there is a God, we can say the Gospels are true, that Jesus claimed to be God, and He proved it through His physical resurrection and His ascension into heaven. But now we're challenged. We're challenged as being arrogant because we are preaching an unrealistic and an unfair exclusivity. That Jesus is the only way to God. What about all the other religions and faith systems? Don't all religions lead to God? Well, this morning we're going to look at this objection to what is the fundamental tenet of our Christian faith that says Jesus is the only way to God and salvation. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And in his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul asked us to remember the time that we were without Christ, having no hope and without God. And I don't know about you, but I can remember what it was like when I was without hope and had no relationship with God. The first 29 years of my life was spent in that condition. And I'll say some more about that later. But in his letter to the the Romans, Paul goes on to say this. In chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. 
We will have no excuses when we stand before the Lord. You see, God's power and His deity are made known through the created order that's around us, and we're all without excuse. God has written His moral law on our hearts. So we are responsible before Him. In that same letter to Romans in chapter 2, Paul says, they're sure that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. You know, when I look around, uh, when I watch the news, and, you know, we've now got the uh, climate disaster, um, and people are focusing on climate change and and the fact, some will say, some of these um, doomsday mongers will say that within 10 years the world's going to collapse. But the, the problem I have with all this is not that, yes, we are affecting the climate, the extent to which is debatable, but it's the fact that now the worship is focused on the creation. People are focused on the creation and worshiping, that's how I see it, the creation instead of the creator. And they will deny that there is a creator. But this is what we call general revelation. <clears throat> and the sad fact is that rather than serve and worship their creator, people ignore God and they flout his moral law. And the conclusion is that we are all under the power of sin. Paul says it like this, again in Romans chapter 3 this time, he says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have become, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And he goes on to explain that no one can redeem themselves by righteous living or good works. We cannot achieve God's sinless standards in our own strength. So that leaves us in a pretty hopeless position. But fortunately, God has provided a means of escape from the judgment and the justice that we all therefore deserve. Jesus Christ has died for the sins of mankind, thus satisfying the demands of God for justice and making a way for reconciliation through Jesus' atoning death. Salvation is made available as a gift received by faith. So what we've got is the universality of sin, so we're all sinners, and the uniqueness of Christ's atoning death, meaning that there is no salvation apart from Christ. Now, that's our message. That's our gospel message. But I want to get on to, um, and don't, don't get put off by these two words. We're now going to look at particularism versus pluralism. What does that mean? Well, particularism is the view that only one religion is a means to salvation. That's what we say. So we are all particularists. Pluralism is the view that many religions are a means of salvation. Now, why is it that people argue that it's right and that it's okay to say that there are many ways to God, but it's not right 
to say there is only one way to God. And I think part of the problem here is that in our society today, truth has become subjective. Your truth may be all right for you, but it's not true for me. Jesus might be true for you, but not true for me. Truth, they would tell us, is subjective. And there is more than one way, and if there is more than one way, then we can choose whichever one is the most palatable to us as individuals, which is the easiest one, the one that doesn't require us to change our ways or be answerable to anyone. Basically, we can do whatever we like. That's a nice, comfortable position to be in, if it were true. But it's not true. And another argument against uh, Christ being the only way is that this means that everybody who disagrees is mistaken. How can you be so arrogant to suggest that you know the one way, that you know the truth? How arrogant is that? Now, I'm always mindful that um, we're on podcast, and when you listen to a podcast, if there's a silence then you might just switch off and think I must be the end of it. Well, for those listening to the podcast, first of all, let me say we're thrilled that you're listening. And I feel privileged that you bothered to take the time out to listen to me talking on this stuff. But I'm going to ask a question now, and I'm only going to leave a minute or so while I go and get myself a coffee. And I want you to talk about it here around your tables, this question. And then I'll come back with, um, with the answer. So, do you think... It's arrogant for a religious pluralist to believe that his view is right and all religious particularists are wrong. Now, remember our definition of pluralists and particularists? But just discuss that question for a moment while I get myself a cup of coffee. Do you think it's arrogant for a religious pluralist to believe that his view, that there there are many ways to God, is right and all religious particularists, there's only one way, are wrong. Okay, so have a quick discussion about that around your table while I get myself a coffee. And podcast listeners, bear with us. You can talk about it for yourself as well. Yeah. Right, podcasters, I've got me coffee now, and there's lots of discussion going on around our tables, um, which is good. So, I'm not going to go around the tables and ask you all to give an answer. You've all had a chance to discuss it. What I would say is this, there really is no difference in terms of being arrogant either way, because the pluralists are telling you that they are right and you are wrong. They're making a truth claim, just like we are. So that arrogance, that allegation of arrogance goes straight back to them who make it to us. Imagine this scenario. A medical scientist discovers a cure for a fatal disease that really works. And suppose that scientist is really full of himself, and he openly boasts about his discovery. 
and he claims that he deserves a Nobel Prize. He looks down on his colleagues as mental midgets, and he tells them so. Now, clearly, he's arrogant and he's immoral in his behavior, but this doesn't undermine the truth of his claim. More than this, if you had that fatal disease, would you refuse to take his treatment because he's arrogant and he's immoral? Well, I hope not. The truth of the position is independent of the character of the persons who hold it. So these allegations of arrogance on our part really don't stand up to that test. So, my story is that I came to faith in Christ through the prayers of others and an unsought revelation of the truth of the gospel. And since then, I have investigated the evidence and the reasons for my faith and the fact that I've stayed true to those beliefs for more than 34 years now is why I can humbly embrace the Christian faith as an undeserved gift of God. That's my story. I wasn't seeking God. And I'm going to come to this point. I wasn't looking for Him, at least I didn't know it consciously that I was doing that, but there was a revelation of truth to me, and I knew it was truth. Even, under the, even though I'd never read the Bible, I never understood um, what the Christian faith was all about. I became a Christian, and then I sought the evidence. Much like the apostles, if you remember, we, we talked about the, um, the 12, the disciples of Jesus. They were empowered. They knew they believed in Jesus, but when he died, they were lost. But they were empowered when they saw the evidence. They were empowered by the evidence of what they had seen. And I feel the same. I'm empowered by what I've experienced in my own walk in life. Am I arrogant and immoral for believing what I sincerely think is true? What else can I do but believe it? I think it's true. So, the next objection is, um, is the problem a lack of information. How could someone who has never heard of Jesus be expected to believe in him? And if they haven't heard, how can a just and loving God judge them and allow them to go to hell? Hell being that place where God is absent. We dealt with the question of hell in a previous message, but I would say this, God is never unfair, and no one will be able to stand before God and say, that's not fair. You can't do that to me. No one will be in that position. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 29, we're told quite clearly that if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, this is an important principle. Everyone who truly seeks after God will find him. God isn't hiding. If a person truly desires to know God, God will make himself known. Now, there are varying views um, on this, but William Lane Craig, who is an amazing apologist and uh, very intellectual, very academic. Tim would probably understand his books better than I do. Um, so, Tim, read On God by William Lane Craig if you haven't already read it. It'll, um, 
yeah, I struggled with it because it's far too intellectual and academic for me. <clears throat> but anyway, I do like William Lane Craig, and I like what he says. But he says this, God doesn't judge people who have never heard of Christ on the basis of whether they've placed their faith in Christ. Now, stay with me. This is not heresy coming here. Rather, God judges them on the basis of the light of God's general revelation in nature and conscience that they do have. You see, it can be argued that the offer of Romans 2 verse 7, which says, To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. It's a bona fide offer of salvation. Someone who senses his need of forgiveness through his guilty conscience and flings himself on the mercy of God revealed in nature may find salvation. Now, this doesn't contradict what I've been saying, and it doesn't mean that people can be saved apart from Christ. Rather, it is to say that the benefits of Christ's atoning death can be applied to people without their conscious knowledge of Christ. But unfortunately, the evidence is that people don't generally measure up even to these lower standards of general revelation. But I have to say that my response um, to, this, to those who are offering this objection to me, and I've had this on the coffee van on a Friday night, um, where they'll say, well, what about, it's not right, can't be right, can't be true. What about those who've never heard? My response is, if there are people who've never heard, why does that bother you? Because you've heard. You can tell everyone you know. So don't concern yourself with those who may be out there who maybe haven't heard of Jesus Christ. Let's leave them to God. Let him make the judgment. He's not going to be unfair. <clears throat> and you could say to them, well, also you're questioning God's fairness. Well, since God is the very standard of justice... No one will be treated unfairly in the afterlife. No one will go to hell who should go to heaven and vice versa. No one will go to hell who should go to heaven. Everyone has heard of God through the creation and conscience. See Romans 1 and 2 as I mentioned earlier. But not everyone has heard of Jesus. God will get the gospel to those who are truly seeking him so they can be saved. See, the question is, for all of us, are we truly seeking God? Or do we just ignore Him? God will get the gospel to those who are truly seeking Him, so they can be saved. And that's very much what He did to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. So for your homework this week, read Acts chapter 10. Read about Cornelius. Those that reject the light of creation and conscience will not respond to the brighter light of the gospel. In fact, it could be that God has so ordered the world that those who never hear the gospel wouldn't have believed it anyway. In Acts chapter 17, it says, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So the question for us is, having heard the gospel, how will we respond? How do we respond to God? And you could say to those who you know, present that objection, well, you know, if you are concerned about this problem, then why not add yourself to the people whom God uses to get the gospel to those who've never heard? 
And that's the charge for all of us. That is the Great Commission, isn't it? We have to go out there. It's one thing for us to be here on a Sunday and and to come together as one and to worship God and to listen to His Word and to be encouraged and uplifted. But if we never do anything out there, if we never do anything about it, if we don't share that with people out there, then are we being true to our faith? Are we being true to the Lord? Are we doing what He wants us to do? And we live in a post-Christian society. It's countercultural to come to church. We're not, we're not seeing people flooding here on a Sunday morning, anxious to hear. They're not really interested. We have to be where they are. You look at all the other religions in the world, and not one of them has a God who intervenes in human history. Our God came and lived among us as a man, totally sinless. And what did we do? We killed him. But he turned what could be said to be the most evil act in human history, murdering the creator God. He turned it into the greatest good for all of us. He rose again. He took the burden of every sin ever committed upon himself, and he graciously offered us atonement and a free pass into his presence forever. You see, our compassion for and towards those of other religions and none is expressed, not by pretending they are not lost without Christ, but by supporting and making every effort to communicate to them the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. It's kind of easy to give platitudes And it's kind of easy to avoid a discussion and an argument when someone believes something different to us and let them believe that they may be right. But if we do that, we're guilty of condemning them to hell. Potentially. And I'm going to ask the band to return now. Um... And then Paul and I will be coming back onto the stage after that with some of the news that we want to discuss with you. But, you know, my conclusion to all this is truth is not subjective. Truth is not subjective. If it's true, it's true for you and me and everyone all the time, everywhere. And if it's not true, it's not true for you and me for all time, everywhere. God exists. The Bible, the New Testament is truth. Jesus proved who he was by his death and his resurrection. That's truth. 1 Timothy um, chapter 2 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 14, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And in Romans 10, you know, Paul says, For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? I think in light of all this, we can safely say, despite the objections, that Jesus is the only way to peace with God now 
the salvation of our souls, and our place in heaven with Him for eternity. Other faiths and belief systems cannot offer such compelling evidence for their truth claims. And make no mistake, they're all making truth claims. But we know, based on the evidence of history, of archaeology, of personal testimony, of evidence that our belief is true. So the band are going to lead us again into worship. And I just want to close. I want to say a quick prayer at this point. Um, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into, into worshiping this God of ours who loves us so much that he doesn't want that any of us should perish. Father, we just thank you for this time here together. We thank you that we uh, can gather and, and worship and praise your name and listen to your word and hear from you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you have this, given us this offer of salvation by grace. We thank you, Lord. And my prayer this morning is if there be anyone sitting in this room now or listening at the podcast later who doesn't know you, who hasn't made that step of faith, well, Lord, they've heard about you now. They've heard the truth of your claims, and we ask that they will respond by accepting you, Jesus, as their personal Savior, that they'll turn around from going their own way, and they'll come back to you and go your way. In your mercy, Lord, and in your grace, let it be so. Amen. This is the end of this message. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more about our church, please visit www.chowdean.org.uk please take a minute to rate our podcast on iTunes.